Hola, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Tom van der Linden. He's a YouTuber, video essayist, and creator of Like Stories of Old. Finding meaning in modern life is hard. What glory is there to achieve when all of your existence has already been made totally convenient by technology? Heroic narratives still exist in movies and books, but can we apply these lessons to the real world? Expect to learn how to tell the difference between serving ourselves and serving others, why watching a heroic movie can skew our expectations of life, why it's difficult to ever truly know another person, what Albert Camus can teach us about enduring suffering, why David Foster Wallace called adult life the day-to-day trenches, and much more. Tom's YouTube channel is absolutely fantastic, and he's got this sort of real calm, existential insight thing going on, and he knows far more about philosophy than me. So there's lots to take away from today. Also, personal update, I am still currently in Guatemala. Long story, I came out here to get my visa for the US uh, trip that I'm on, uh, and it's taken a little bit longer than anticipated. So I am uh, bodging together a hotel room set up at the moment. Uh, I will be here for, I'm not sure how much longer, but a little while at least. However, do not worry. The show is going to continue. The internet connection is fast. And I thankfully brought a microphone out with me. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by pop demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee. So if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product, they will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom and MW15 at checkout. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tom van der Linden. Dude, I love your stuff. I think that your channel is absolutely fantastic. 
Mm-hmm. Thanks. That it's it's one of my favorite things on the internet. For the people that don't know, it's like stories of old YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. How do you describe? Let's say you meet someone at a party and they say, "Oh, you do YouTube." Yeah. What What do you YouTube about? What do you say? It's the worst question. It depends on the person, like how familiar they are with the YouTube space. If I can see like they're like a normal person who doesn't have like the super high awareness about what YouTube means, I'll just say like, uh, I make short documentaries like or something like that. Um, sometimes I'll just say like, uh, I'll make video essays and they'll, of course people will ask like, oh, what's a video essay? And then it's it, it's like an essay, but except it has video with it. <laughs> so, and it depends. You can you can often quickly like sense uh, if a person is like really interested, or if it was just asking out of politeness. So um, yeah, depending on how they on their attitude, I will expand more or elaborate more on. Um, I think the the long the more complicated answer would be like I'll say that it's a combination between like examining philosophy and doing media analysis and sort of exploring the relation between the two. Yeah, I've had the uh, so what's your podcast about question a hundred times since I've mm-hmm. been in Austin and uh, I, I still am yet to come up with a good succinct answer that mm-hmm. isn't five minutes long and someone didn't want the five minute <laughs> long answer. They wanted me to say oh it's about ultimate frisbee or it's about World of Warcraft, or it's about porn, or something. Um, like they, they just wanted like a one-word answer. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't give you that. So tie together. What's is there a common thread that does tie together all of the videos that you do, or is it just your whatever your curiosity has in store that day? Um, I think what the channel name originally referred to, like stories of old, is the idea that you have movies, which is relatively speaking a new form of art like it's been around for like just over a century uh video games as well it's even newer and then the idea was that even those new forms of art they still have or still carry like the timeless wisdom like the stories of old you know so that's kind of one i what i set out to do that was sort of the premise of the channel that i wanted to kind of get a sense of the timeless within the contemporary art forms and also that in doing so like explore why i'm still so why i'm so drawn to all these things like why do certain movies become like my favorite movies like why do they evoke like deep emotions within me or why do films from filmmakers like far away resonate with me like very strongly even though i share nothing with them like on the surface level and so yeah that's uh, that's kind of how it came to be, and I think that's an element that keeps being like a cornerstone of the videos. I think that a big part of it, at least for me and from the buddies that I've uh, shilled your content to as well, mm-hmm. uh, one of the reasons that it's enjoyable is that digging into the real discomfort, sort of the very normal, very comfortable, very banal existential uh anime that is a byproduct of just being a human and very well may have been for the last you know 50,000 years but feels like a very uh, particular uh distillation of that now um you know really allowing to sit with that discomfort i think is something that's very interesting so one of the mm-hmm. topics that you talk about a lot is uh heroic stories and heroism and things like that 
there's one hero in every story, but everybody that watches the story kind of presumes that it's us that's supposed to play that role. Do you think that there is a problem in being too heavily reliant or um, putting heroic stories up on a pedestal because of that reason? Um, it, it definitely can be, um, but um, yeah, I, I think it's understandable too. So even though I would point it out as problematic, I wouldn't say like it's immediately like a judgment of humanity because I do believe that we are naturally like um, egocentric. Like we literally see the world from only our own perspective. So naturally, like we experience ourselves as the center like the the center of the universe like almost literally like the world to us like the world revolves around like ourselves and our like our emotions our feelings like everything around us um is is sort of geared towards us and we uh like like we don't also we don't have access to like other people's minds like we everything else has to be communicated to us um, so in that sense, it makes sense. Or it's per- or it's perfectly logical that we see ourselves as a central character, as a central hero, because of course we also tend to see ourselves as good people generally. Like we like to believe that we at least have good intentions or whatever. Um, but yeah, and so heroic stories, yeah, they can definitely indulge that kind of natural self-centeredness in a way that also romanticizes it and maybe glorifies it and especially in our like current day and age of like social media and uh having to present ourselves and being more concerned with the image we project uh towards the outside then yeah i can definitely imagine or at least for myself i have struggled with like how heroic stories have set like expectations for me that i um that led to some conflict like in my personal life in uh, in various ways you say in one of your videos that there's a difference between heroic purpose and grandiosity between serving others and serving ourselves and you ask Mm. how we can know if we're acting to better the world or just to inflate our own ego and this line between the two is so hard because everything's performative now I had this discussion. I was with uh, Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal, this weekend, and we talked about this thing, performative empathy, that people do in a way to make themselves look like somebody that's good. So it's more important to look like somebody that's good than it is to be a person who is good or to even do good. And yeah, yeah, yeah. that, I don't know, that sort of meta game where it's not about doing the thing, it's about people seeing you do the thing. It's not about donating to charity, it's about taking an Instagram selfie while you give a homeless person on the street mm-hmm. $5. That plays out, and, and the problem is, everyone knows that performative nature of sort of charity and, and stuff, right? Like that's conspicuous consumption meets altruism. You know, it's, yeah. it's just signaling. The dangerous thing, I think, <clears throat> heroic purpose and grandiosity between serving others and serving ourselves that seems to cross a line into something more personal, more existential, more identity focused. And that's mm-hmm. a bigger concern, I think, for me. Um, yeah. yeah. Just to go back to the first point you mentioned about the performative empathy, I think there's also, it's easy to criticize that, that oh, it's just the Instagrammer 
doing it for the likes, helping that homeless. But at the same time, if you you can also argue or like maybe add like a little bit of nuance that if everyone does more performative stuff, then it, at the same time, it also brings that message out into the world. It actually inspires people to to uh, do, do some actual good, like the, the the kind of fake it till you make it idea that we if we if enough people perform, then maybe like collectively we start to do better in in actual terms. So there, it's easy to criticize, but I can see there's also a value to it that might be uh, underappreciated if uh, we are all like just hoarding on the the one Instagrammer who seems to do something performative. Yeah, I think that it's easy to throw shade at that person, right? Mm-hmm. It's easy to say, look, they're obviously just doing it for the likes. But you're right, yeah. the, the cash value of the person who gives $5 to the homeless person but puts it on Instagram is $5 more than the person that doesn't do it at all. And yeah, exactly. Like, it's easy to criticize, but at the same time, like, I don't give like ludicrous amounts of money to homeless people. So who am I to then judge the person for doing it? And I agree. I agree. I yeah. think the, the example that we were using, which was a little bit more um, uh, like close to the bone was mm-hmm. we were talking about the eco movement and about how many, many people are pro green simply because that's the thing that makes them look good. And they like highlighting mm-hmm. the problems of other companies or other people from an iphone that was built on the back of slave labor out in china from a car which is still pumping a bunch of fossil fuels out into the atmosphere mm-hmm. you know like the the point just being that performative empathy can sometimes be more important than genuine empathy yeah definitely uh, but yeah yeah in the, especially in the context of like climate change and the green movement that's it becomes like it has like a whole other layers of complications because uh, it, it kind of suggests that's like it, it ties your personal actions to like the whole continent or like the whole world. Like everything that you do has like connections uh, everywhere else. Um, and at the same time, you also know more about what your connections are like doing because at the same time, we have a more globalized world like the banana you eat. It's coming from far away or like even like the the fruits that should like grow in your area they might be grown like two continents over and then packaged somewhere else and then shit back to you again and at the same time you have like the internet and now you every day you hear about all those things so you know exactly like how you're connected in this global web of like endless connections and um naturally like all kinds of things that you would maybe ethically be against but at the same time like uh, I can imagine like you want to make an effort to lessen that impact or maybe better like um, align your own values with those implications. But at the same time, I it's also hard. Like you cannot expect someone else to be completely insulated from the world around them. You cannot like expect them to disconnect entirely from that web of like interaction. So it's, that's kind of like the, the the quote of mine that you mentioned. Like it's there's such a fine line, and everything is so it, it's such a balancing act between wanting to do good, having to face the implications, and then not having those implications like discourage you, but at the same time also not having the good impact like overly inflate your ego. So there's like these endless, it's this constant balancing act between um, being hopeful on the one hand but not being like 
grandiose about it or like being overzealous about it. But at the same time, also, I think it's also very important to not fall into like cynicism and oh, everything sucks and nothing matters. And that's something I think people should be extremely careful of because it's so easy to just end up in that uh, fall down into that rabbit hole nowadays. Have you got any um, idea how people can work out whether they're <laughs> acting to better the world or just to inflate their own ego? Um, no, that, that's the reason I, I wanted to make that video because I didn't have the answer myself. <laughs> and it's something I struggled with because at the same time, like there were a lot of things that it, it's not always either or, like there can be things that make you feel better and make your like your ego more or that flatter your ego while at the same time doing actual good but um i think it's just one element that can never do uh, that never um would be that's never hurtful is to just maintain some awareness about how you're feeling about what you're doing and seeing like how you're connected to certain actions like emotionally because that's I think the part of ourselves that we are sometimes most reluctantly to really examine um, like so you know the the Ben Shapiro thing like facts don't care about your feelings but I think it it very much works the other way around as well like feelings don't always care about the facts so you might be mindful of those as well I don't think it's constructive to pretend that we're like completely rational persons who gather information, make a reasonable decision, and then act accordingly. I think it's important to, under, to to have a sense of your own like desires and fears and your own biases, your own like hidden ideological beliefs, that sort of st stuff. Um, the things that trigger you like emotionally, um, those things I think are always worth worth like examining. And um, so, yeah, I guess that's uh, as good a start as any. <laughs> Well, I think that is the temptation of the rational <laughs> movement, right? That people thought that if they became the most educated on cognitive biases and they were able to mm -hmm. identify all of the different ways that their thinking might be flawed, that they would actually be able to shortcut the system itself. But the Jonathan Haidt example of the rider on the back of an elephant is like you, you get to see this tiny little 2% sliver of what's going on and then the rest of it's mm -hmm. just running on autopilot and you're like okay so I, i'm just at the mercy of most of these things and i i went to this um you know scott alexander right from slate star codex or astral codex 10 he's this blogger very famous blogger mm -hmm. big rationalist guy uh, and he held a meetup in austin and i went to it and somebody asked him something along the lines of um i i don't even think he got asked about it i think he just said out of out of the blue um there was a period where we all thought that we could fix our lives through rationalism, right? Through the rationalist movement. Um, mm -hmm. And it turns out that isn't true. And I was like, that's really interesting because Daniel Kahneman that wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, he was on stage with Sam Harris five or six years ago. And Sam said, so Daniel, you're a Nobel Prize winner, one of the most preeminent psychologists on the planet that understands the way that the human brain works. After decades and decades at the cutting edge of this research, are you any closer to being a more rational human being? And Daniel just went, not really. And you think, right, okay, <laughs> so this is the guy, Roy Baumeister talks about his willpower, you know, yeah. like the guy that wrote the, the, the book on willpower. And you think, well, 
if that's the case, if more knowledge isn't necessarily the solution, then mm -hmm. it, it is something else. And accepting the fact that feelings are going to continue to just plow through however much logic you try to throw at it and, yeah. and, and trying to um, trying to hold on to that uh, mm -hmm. as, as a, a place of wisdom as opposed to something to kind of be ashamed of. I actually had this, uh, this concept that I wanted to teach you about. I thought that this would be up your street and it's about right here. So I spoke about this oh, yeah. on my, my newsletter a couple of months ago, about, about a year ago, and um, then I released it the other week. And yet again, every time I talk about it, people love it. It's called The Inner Citadel, right? So mm -hmm. it's uh, Isaiah Berlin is the first guy that came up with this. So I'm just going to read you a little passage here. It says, oh, yeah, sure. when the natural road toward human fulfillment is blocked, human beings retreat into themselves, become involved in themselves, and try to create inwardly that world which some evil fate has denied them externally. If you cannot obtain from the world that which you really desire, you must teach yourself not to want it. If you cannot get what you want, you must teach yourself to want what you can get. This is a very frequent form of spiritual retreat in depth into a kind of inner citadel in which you try to lock yourself up against all the fearful ills of the world. And a simpler example from my friend Rob is, if your leg is wounded, then you can try to treat the leg and if you can't treat the leg, you cut it off and announce that the desire for legs is misguided and must be subdued. <laughs> uh, basically, if you can't win the game, yeah, yeah. then you stop playing, say that you never cared about the game, and then create your own game with rules that you can more easily win at. And I think that this is what's happening with the rationalist movement, in part. Don't get me wrong, I, I mm -hmm. love Cognitive Biases, FS Top Blog, Shane Parrish has been on the show, all that stuff's great. But mm -hmm. there is like a cold comfort of rationality that, yeah. ins that insulates people from having to feel things. And I think yeah. that that's where this comes from. And the funny thing, too, is that you, if you, when you look at those people who are like the loudest about being about the facts and the truth and the rationality, they're like also, they tend to be the people who are most obviously driven by like emotional responses. Like, but it's, yeah, it's. It can be like an interesting phenomenon to me. I find it I find it fascinating to see how the interchange between the fact that we have the opportunity to to know so much, right? We have the opportunity to kind mm -hmm. of wrangle the world into what it is, but the fact that we can't get away from our emotions, the tension between those two things is funny because we think, well, hang on, science has let us go to the moon and it's cured some diseases and it's done all of this other stuff we can communicate around the globe. Why can't I be the one that's in control of my emotions or my internal state yeah, yeah. or my fears or my insufficiency or my ego or my desire for more or whatever? And we're not. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we kind of distaste. We have distaste for too. Yeah, it's like you're reaching certain limitations within yourself in the same way that you might reach like limitations in the external world, which can be it's like an existential re realization in some way like the idea that maybe if you're like have a tendency towards like jealousy or like envy that 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 might not be something that goes away like no matter how much you try to let it go or like even like try to feed into it like try to get all the things that you would want or otherwise be envious about then it's it's still going to be that like there's certain character traits that I think you just carry with you and that um, you just have to 
deal with in some way or another. But in that in that sense, I would say like it's the best to have it like right at the surface where you can keep an eye on it instead of just repressing it down and waiting for it to like come up unexpectedly, uh, probably at a moment that's least convenient. Yeah, there's a bit that you said here talking about the um, the fact that everybody is kind of fundamentally alone. Everybody tries to let the people around them understand themselves as best as they can. But when we really, really do genuinely try to open up, that's often Mm -hmm. when we sort of stumble over our own words and fall face flat on the floor. Um, You've got this quote from David Foster Wallace that says, everybody is identical in their secret unspoken belief that way deep down they are different from everyone else. Mm -hmm. What's that mean to you? Um, I think that comes, David Foster Wallace is also someone who was really conscious about people having this egocentric human condition, sort of like nature of their character. Like, um, yeah, I think that's, that's the part where he says like that we experience the world as from our like point of view, like literally like we are at the center of our universe and um i think the the author ernest becker he also goes into that like with real poetic language as well like you you are like in touch with yourself with such like wealth and depth and you feel like complicated emotions and complex thoughts and like contradicting ideas but it's it's much more difficult to get a sense of those like uh in another person like it's easy to see another person almost literally like as less human than you because you uh you see maybe like a handful of like surface level traits that they have and then you kind of cut it off you don't deny them or or you tend to deny other people like from having the same depth depth that is within you so um yeah i think that's what that sort of means to me like you um I guess it's also an, an issue of like empathy, like the limits of empathy. Like you can try to understand other people, but at some point, um, especially if you're not making a conscious effort to like understand others, it's easy to like cut them off at some point. Like instead of of in in terms of like character depth and. But we don't even understand yeah. our own emotional states, you know. Yeah. If you how how do you hope to truly be able to understand somebody else? and the nuance to their very personal type of suffering mm-hmm. when you can't even put into words your own suffering. Yeah, that's very much true. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I always like, I like to compare like the, the depths of like the human heart or the soul or whatever you want to call it, like to just basically like the, the nature of the universe itself, like, I think that the most smallest depth within you, it's like comparable comparable to like the grandest mystery of the universe in the sense that we can understand like a lot about it, but we can never quite touch that ultimate essence that it's that's at the heart of things. Um, but at the same time, that may very well be like a projection that we cast onto it. Maybe there isn't some secret, like unconscious hidden depth, maybe like all the, the things we see and feel it's just that is all, all it is yeah, yeah 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 which is kind of even more terrifying yeah 
Have you seen the the movie Drive My Car, the the one that won the Oscar for best foreign film? No. It's a Japanese film. It's it's a three hour movie about basically this guy who I won't go into spoilers too much, but this is like the premise. Um, it has a long introduction in which, you, in which you see the life of a guy who apparently knows that his wife is cheating on him, and then the wife suddenly dies before he confronts her about it so it leaves him like with this gaping hole with not understanding his wife and why she did what she did and um and there's a point later on where another character like he of course he's like trying to get into the depths of her and like what he trying to figure out what it is that he doesn't get about or what he was missing maybe or what he didn't provide for her that maybe caused her to do that and then at some point, there's another character that kind of points out, like, maybe there's not, maybe there's no secret. Maybe that's just, maybe she loved you and she went with other guys as well or something like that. And that to me got me thinking about, yeah, maybe there is, maybe we try to overanalyze it sometimes. Like we can, um, I, th- I feel that's also a thing that happens a lot with people who, actively go in search of their self like they go to some retreat or like on some journey like they want to discover like some hidden essence within them that they feel out of touch with but maybe that's part of the issue maybe there's nothing like maybe the whole idea of having one like solid center somewhere hidden within you is uh kind of an illusion to like maybe that's something we project or that we in, in, for some reason or another, like symbolize and project within ourselves. But yeah, that's even more scary to me. The idea that mm-hmm. there isn't, you know, the egoicless, infinite hole of peace that is to be found. That mm-hmm. the, the the conflict that you have that you're riding on a daily basis is just. That's what it is. And you're right. I always think about, um, you know, when there's missing people, someone's daughter has gone missing or whatever, and it's been Mm -hmm. four years, and the mother's still unable to hold a press conference without breaking down in tears. And what do they always say? They say, I just want to know, right? What they want is to close that loop. And I wonder whether the, um, let's say, with a thought experiment that there is there are certain mm-hmm. uh disjointed discordant elements of ourselves right that just do not mesh together the fact mm-hmm. that we want to do certain things and yet our nature or our uh, predisposition or our programming pulls us away from doing them we don't want to eat the cookie because we want to lose weight but then we also want to have the cookie right let, yeah, yeah. Let, let's say that there isn't anything deeper than that yeah. let's say that there is no way to close that loop Right, the missing person, the missing cookie doesn't come back, and we don't find out where it went. We don't find mm-hmm. out why we wanted it. Mm-hmm. That's that's almost like that. When thinking about that, makes me feel even more scared by it. Yeah, because otherwise, in in the first example or in the cookie example, you can say like, if you have the the one hand, the, I want the cookie, but I also like I want to be disciplined because I don't want to lose weight, and then you. Of course, you hope like the one of those, especially like the latter one, is connected to like your true self or like your true desire, and the other one is just an obstacle that you have to overcome. But yeah, so yeah, I can imagine if that if that true self is not there, then it's really just the two desires that 
Um, and what the fuck's virtue you know what does that mean what does it mean about who you are maybe Mm -hmm. you are the cookie eater more than you are the discipline i think even without that sense of like a true self you can still choose to not eat the cookie it's just i feel like you can still like choose to you still have that freedom to feed one desire over another and that's i guess the even without an essence, there's still like a guiding sort of consciousness or an awareness that can choose between like, what am I trying to feed or what am I trying to like avoid or like have there be less of. <laughs> there's a, uh, I want to go back to what you said before, because I've had this sort of sense for a little while and I really, really, I really love mm-hmm. the idea that there's a, an imbalance between how much we're going to see of ourselves, i.e. Mm-hmm. everything, uh, and how much we're going to see of everybody else, yeah. re- relatively nothing. And the fact that there is this huge imbalance in the richness of our own experience, mm-hmm. and yet we get to see this, <laughs> we only get to see what other people are aware of, that they choose to communicate, that we're around to be able to see at the right time, when we were paying attention, you know, you just filter down all of this stuff. And I do think you're right, like that true empathy, when you look at it that way, you go... How are you even supposed to begin to understand mm-hmm. somebody else? I mean, so what do you think with that? Do you th- is it possible to ever truly know another person? Um, I think well enough. But to add another layer to what you just said, like this, uh, to just drop another movie, there was the recent one, uh, The Worst Person in the World. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. It's a Danish film. Um, it also, it, it's about this, woman who's in her 30s and she's also kind of struggling through life and existence and her relationships and stuff and again without spoiling too much too much at one point a person is um, on his deathbed and he says to her like when i die i i don't know the exact quote but um it was an ex-lover and he he says like when i die i'm gonna take some part of you with me because there's things that i know about you like little details that you have probably forgotten or like moments that they've shared that she doesn't remember but he does and he's taking that with him in death and that's kind of i thought that was such an interesting reversal of the idea like we are trying to get to know other people but in the same sense where we can lose ourselves like or or we give little pieces of ourselves to others that they then maybe keep to themselves that we sort of that we lose for ourselves but that others keep for us um which i that was strangely uplifting to me i don't know what you're thinking about it but it's dude i used to keep on getting existential terror by all of these yeah these situations but you're right there is something that we get to do and 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 also you know when somebody leaves by definition they're no longer here to be themselves to be able to see themselves and yet you have a part of them that's mm-hmm. within you. Do you remember, you've seen, you've done a bunch of, or maybe even more than one review of Interstellar, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and in that, <laughs> do you remember the the discussion that they're having uh, when they're going to make their final decision about which planet to go to? And they're saying, look, he's not going to be there. There's no chance that he's there. Uh, mm-hmm. And they start having this debate about evolution, about why is it that we love people that have already passed or that are no longer with us? Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, 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 very clearly. Yeah. So that, oh, well, I mean, what does that mean to you? What does that section mean to you when they're talking about the fact that she's lost this person, 
He's yeah. gone to somewhere else and she knows that he's there and she can't explain to anybody why she knows she's there. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys tries to explain it away with the rational thing about, oh, it's just pair bonding and it's a way to cohese the group together and blah, blah. And she goes, no, it's not. There's something going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, actually, that my last video was on Christopher Nolan. So I rewatched uh, Interstellar not too long ago for that. So yeah, the, the scene is kind of fresh in my memory. Um as a like sci-fi concept, I thought it was interesting in the way that um, the the character, it's Anne Hathaway character, she's kind of arguing for like I'm feeling this longing towards this person, and I think that should influence like my rational deci- decision, even if I don't understand why. And then there's of course Matthew McConaughey's character, who at that point is like more the the the, the quote unquote reasonable person who says like no that's kind of silly because that's not a rational concept. Like love def- definitely has a function. He says it's for like child rearing and like uh, later on the Matt Damon character, he's also like speaks of love as a survival tool. Like if you're like struggling, then you think about your loved ones because that gives you that extra push to keep going. So there's th- the film does offer like a lot of reasons to um, why love is just basically this, chemical in the brain as like the rational sometimes say like it's it's it has a function it's evolutionary it's nothing more beyond that but um i think the way the film tries to not necessarily dismiss that but at least add to that that it's no it's, it's all that but it's also more is the way then that ultimately the whole plot revolves or or succeeds because of a more intangible connection to love. Like, um, I think it's fine if we spoil the movie, right? I think a lot of people have seen it. Um, Because Murph, at that point, she feels drawn to her, like, old bedroom with the ghost. And uh, at that point, I'm pretty sure she knows that her dad isn't coming back. Like, uh, I'm guessing everyone on Earth, they... Uh, understand that either they are all gone or they are dead and either way there's no her dad is not coming home um but then she goes back for that watch anyway and that's also why matthew mcconaughey's character he makes that decision to like he codes it into the, the 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 data or whatever they need for the plot like that's coded into the watch with the sole reason that like he has faith that she will return for that watch because that's of all the elements within that room that he has access to. That's the connection there. That's the, the, that's love. That's, that's the one thing that binds everything together there. So, um, yeah, I think it's just, I think I thought it actually was a nice suggestion in the way that it shows that love might be a more guiding uh, element than we appreciate it or then that that can be appreciated in rational terms um or more like a guiding light or a driving force or, or whatever you want to call it um so yeah and he, if you go even more science fiction about it like I, I i personally like the idea just as like a thought experiment that love is like maybe as part of like a sort of higher consciousness that's multi-dimensional so that we uh, that's something that the uh, filmmaker Terrence Malick also um, kind of hinted at in his film uh, The Thin Red Line, uh, where one of the characters at one point 
questions like maybe there's one big soul that everyone's a part of like oh everyone's just different faces of the same man um now I, i wouldn't like it's not like a belief that i have literally but i do like the idea of because we especially because we know so little about multiple dimensions and multiverses and whatever like possibilities that there are out there that maybe like our consciousness is some in some way like also existing in another sliver of reality that we don't have access to what well, doesn't panpsychism kind of begin to take this one step mm-hmm. toward actually being reality that the, the argument from panpsychism is that mm-hmm. everything has consciousness baked into it but it, oh, yeah. it it only manifests in particular ways in particular places that consciousness mm-hmm. is a, a fundamental uh, element of the universe and if that's the case and we can't measure it then who knows where it mm-hmm. goes to um yeah i another thing that i always think about that's kind of one of these imbalances between how much we can see of ourselves how much we can ever know of of other people is the fact that we're a finite creature that's surrounded by infinite complexity, but the mm-hmm. depth that we're able to go to inside of ourselves is also infinite. So we're a finite, mm. infinite creature surrounded by yeah. infinite complexity that we only have a finite ability to reach. And mm-hmm. all of that sort of mixed together just makes me think, well, why wouldn't you be scared or confused or alone or worried or concerned or in solidarity on in solitude whatever it is like all of these different things all of these experiences seem to make sense to me because you have like this para a paradox you're a paradox living inside of a paradox yeah yeah that that's pretty much the, the ernest becker's st- uh, thesis like you know we are like half god half fleshy structure that slowly decays and ultimately dies um or like half symbolic, half physical. Yeah, yes, there's some interesting ways of uh, phrasing it. But um, yeah, I think that's that's one of the things that I still that I still feel drawn towards because I haven't like encountered I haven't yet encountered like a good counter argument for that or someone who really frames it differently or uh, articulates it in a significantly different way. But um, yeah, I think he perfectly captures that. Um, the idea of being having two elements that are fundamentally incompatible um, within us and that we somehow have to make a sense of without destroying each other in the process because that's uh, he in his book he kind of points out like how 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 this human condition can drive us basically insane in some ways or at least it drives like violence and um warfare because we are also desperate to like um or just to to lay out his basic argument is that we are basically trying to symbolically transcend what we cannot transcend physically so he says like okay we there's a part of us that fears death like if you chase after an animal it will like go into this death defying response it will chase it will uh, <clears throat> like flee away and then we basically do the same but because we have a consciousness that is constantly aware of like death at least like conceptually like we accept like oh shit we're gonna die someday so to some extent he says we're basically in this constant death denying state or this death escaping uh, state and we try to do that through like symbolism or like maybe true love is one of them that's 
I think the the auto ranks um, main solution, like we try to transcend ourselves through, on the one hand, procreation, but also through like family members, like living in their memories or legacy, whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and of course, legacy more generally, like maybe through work or achievements or leaving something behind, having leaving this world with the comfort that we have at least have done something like that although our body is gonna gonna go away like we're gonna there's some part of us that lives on um so yeah that's uh you mentioned earlier that, yeah. you mentioned earlier about uh cynicism and mm -hmm. i said that i'd uh had no desire at all to watch afterlife with ricky gervais but then you did a a video analysis of the first season, mm -hmm. and now I'm, I'm tempted to go and do it. And in that, you spent a good bit of time talking about Albert Camus. Oh, what yeah. have you learned from him, or what are some of your favorite insights or takeaways from having spent some time reading Camus? Yeah, he's probably my favorite of the existentialists, um, mainly because he's firmly like secular about it. Like you have existentialist writers like Kierkegaard, who I also think is great, but he also is, he has a more like religious solution. He has the leap of faith. That's ultimately like the, um, his, his, his main thing. Uh, whereas for Camus, he, he he's famously said like, I want to live with what I know and that alone. Like, I don't want to leap into anything. I don't want to make rely on some potential like God or, other dimension or some other like unreachable truth that may be out there and that I must just have faith in. I just want to live with what I know and that alone. Um, so yeah, he, I, I, I'm, I'm best familiar with his book, uh, the myth of Sisyphus in which he kind of explains the, the myth of Sisyphus, which um, the guy who was punished by the gods has to, push a rock up the mountain, see it roll back down and do it all over again. And he kind of explains like it's it's only tragic if he is conscious about that fact. If because if Sisyphus like if he doesn't know the rock is gonna go down, like he's gonna go up each time knowing with the hope that he might succeed this time. But if he knows like this is his fate, like he's gonna do this eternally and then there's nothing else, then that's the real tragedy, like having to be aware of your predicament without being able to do anything about it. And so I think he takes that premise, which is then sort of the the metaphor for life. Like we know we go into this world, we're going to work, we're going to sleep, we're going to do other stuff, maybe have some fun. And at some point we're going to die. Like we we know, like we see the whole game that's been laid out before us, like in general terms. And I think that Camus is mostly trying to find the freedom within it instead of trying to leap towards something else towards some grander ideal or belief and he also really has the um i think the idea of rebellion like we can maybe we cannot escape our fate but we can rebel against it which um i thought was nice just basically give a uh, like give a middle finger to the universe <laughs> and and I, I don't have his work like fresh in my mind but uh, I, I do like that idea of just uh, because that's it's a token of like a very fundamental freedom to just see this whole universe with 
everything like all the the nothingness that it kind of impresses upon you like because if you really take in the weight of the universe it really seems to try to make you feel like absolutely insignificant like you are this <laughs> tiny human that exists for like nothing and even in in the span of like even in the span of like our planet like it's nothing like there's been millions of years before us there's a million years that's going to be after us and on this scale of the universe it's going to be even worse so um everything about the universe screams to you like you're insignificant and then to say like as that insignificant person like i'm gonna make this have meaning anyway i'm gonna find significance anyway that's a very powerful act at least that's i think what camus um is kind of about and what's what i personally also find really inspiring about him they say that in interstellar as well though right they rage rage against the dying of the light mm. that's the yeah, same yeah. sort of look yeah i guess it comes down to the same concept yeah yeah everything and, and so is the line between or is the um the reason that we must imagine sisyphus being happy is that mm-hmm. <clears throat> telling people who are aware of their own mortality that even though you know this game is going to end, that mm-hmm. you have to be able to play the game in a good way? I think so, or at least you're capable of doing so. Um, like, you, you, we must imagine Sisyphus happy because he there is freedom for him to be happy. Like, he can defy his faith in that, um, in, in that moment. Um, I'm not... I'm, I'm not sure exactly how he wrote it down, but he, I think he describes towards the end of that book, like the moment that Sisyphus walks down the hill, like waiting for his whole fate to start all over again. And then if he finds like a moment of happiness in that, during that walk down, then in that moment, he basically defies his whole punishment. He still, they've, they've essentially failed at punishing him because he still, he still, He's still able to be himself. He's still able Taking to express Taking a sliver yeah. of gratitude or pleasure from whatever. Yeah. This is, I had a discussion with a friend. I have a friend <laughs> who's a philosopher who, and I quote, is trying nihilism as a life philosophy. Like okay. consciously just decided, he was like, well, I've had a crack at a few other things and they didn't seem to work. So I'm just going to try nihilism. Uh, and I was like, how's it going? Uh, I don't really know what you're supposed to say. Like, what does, what does nihilism is going well as a life philosophy mean? I'm not really too sure. But he uh, was telling me about David Benatar, who is one of the um, anti-natalist philosophers. Uh, And the argument of anti-natalists is that life is filled with so much suffering that it is basically a crime to bring any human into the world, I think. Uh, Mm -hmm. Something like that. Don't have kids. Don't have kids because life's terrible. Um, And... I try. I really sort of tried to look at it from the opposite perspective, and I didn't realize that that was part of the myth of Sisyphus. That, well, hang on. You can say that a life of almost endless suffering, which it isn't, like it's it's mm-hmm. small amounts of suffering and small amounts of pleasure. But even a life of with an entirety of suffering with a small amount of pleasure in it, tiny, tiny little sliver of it at some point, consciously, I don't know. Like, does that cash out at being w- better than? annihilation or yeah. non-existence overall i i would be tempted the non-nihilist in the room was tempted uh-huh. to say yes <laughs> and it kind of seems like the same thing there you know if the 24 yeah. hour cycle that sisyphus pushes the rock up the hill but there's three seconds 
as the rock lands back in front of him and he takes satisfaction as he begins pushing it off, maybe that is yeah. worth it. Yeah, I would be interested to hear what a person like that would say if you if they if someone believes like it's it's bad to bring children into this world, like you can kind of twist that question around. Like, do you think that you should not have been born at all? Like, would you rather have not existed at all? And maybe if that person says yes, like I wish none of this would have happened, then I'm guess he's living his philosophy. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you talk. But overall, I think that that's that's a, a point where people, a lot of people are going to expose their own hypocrisy. Like, I don't think that a lot of people who believe that we should not bring children into the world because of suffering or the potential for suffering. They would, they themselves would not have wanted to have not existed. Am yes. I saying that correctly? I've not have wanted to exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, with, uh, in the afterlife video that you did, you quote Camus and you say, uh, at certain moments of lucidity, the mechanical aspect of their gestures, their meaningless pantomime makes silly everything that surrounds them. You wonder why they are alive. And that is him talking about kind of the, uh, mm -hmm. pointless daily uh, machinations that people go through, right, as they NPC yeah. and bleep, bleep, bleep mm -hmm. their way through the world. <laughs> um, and it, it seems, because again, I haven't read barely any Camus, that to me seems like a much more very sort of cynical view of the world. And yet you're saying that at the end of the myth of Sisyphus, he kind of has managed to f arrive at a place that seems much more hopeful What's the arc mm -hmm. between that? Is that what Camus does? Does Camus sort of personally and also uh, in terms of his writing go on this journey of cynicism and nihilism and everything's mm -hmm. shit to then come out, come out to something else? Um, not necessarily. Um, again, I, I, I haven't read him recently, so I'm, I'm not in the best position to accurately explain it, but I think he, he especially early in that book, he calls out the concept of the absurd like that we know there's some part of existence that's fundamentally like strange and that's the quote you mentioned and like some other stuff as well that's like it, it that's the i think it's it's also he that says like that you sometimes have the realization that something very ordinary seems fundamentally alien like to us like there's some things that, that sometimes you just have these moments where you feel like a little bit disconnected from reality or something just feels weird. And that's basically, that's, I think, us becoming aware of our like Sisyphus-like fate. Like that's us being, um, because we don't walk around like day to day, like being aware, like, oh, I'm going to push this rock up the hill and it's going to come and it's going to come back down again. Like, like how how old am I? Like how many years do I have left? Like we're not constantly aware of our like mortality and our fate and all those existential things. And so when he says those, or when he brings those things up early in the in his work, he's kind of pointing out that we have those moments where it does, where we suddenly do become aware of that, and that's when that sort of journey begins because that's when you become Sisyphus, who is conscious now. Suddenly he's no longer like hopefully going about his life now he's tried to now he's like forced to make um to justify it in some way to make sense of it and i think that's basically the uh jumping board towards the rest of that book i hope it made sense you also looked at don't look up and i've got a a closet obsession with existential <laughs> risk 
So mm. one of my friends messaged me and was like, dude, I'm not going to tell you anything about this film, but watch it and tell me what you think it was about. What do you yeah. think Don't Look Up was about? Yeah, so for me, when I made the video, I thought it was, or when I went, went into the film into the, in, in the first place, like I, to me, it was obvious that it was about climate change because that's also kind of how it was promoted. Like Leonardo DiCaprio himself, he's really into environmentalism and he obviously really promoted the film in that context. And I think even the uh, director did some tweets about that at least like vaguely emphasized like, okay, this is maybe the, the angle through which we're uh, approaching this film. Um, obviously, it's like about other stuff as well, but that's like the, the, the main metaphor with the comet that's set to strike the planet. But um, yeah, that, that's kind of like I went into it with that assumption. So naturally, that's what I read into it. But I was surprised when I made the video about it. Um, for context, I did a video on um, kind of questioning to what extent it was an effective metaphor for climate change and where it was kind of like struggling a little bit or like failing to capture some nuances and why it did so. Um, but I was actually surprised to see afterwards that there were people who didn't at all think about climate change when they saw that film. So that, to me, that came actually as a bit of a surprise because I thought it was so uh, so on the nose in the way they uh, they presented the film and then the film itself, of course, to me it seemed obvious, but now I'm thinking like, oh, it's probably because that's what I went in looking the frame, for. You, your yeah. priors, you'd already been primed for that, yeah. So again, I, I hadn't seen any of those tweets or whatever, uh, or, or Leonardo DiCaprio's promotion, but there's one scene in it where Jonah Hill's character, uh, they're sat in the, the White House, mm -hmm. and they're talking about the fact that, look, you, you're not taking this seriously, this is the, the asteroid is going to come. It's going to kill everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and Jonah Hill starts listing off all of the big existential risks. And he says, uh, you know, every single week there's somebody in here telling us about a, a, a rogue AI algorithm or a nanobot or an engineered pandemic mm -hmm. or a climate change or whatever. And that to me, because I had my priors and my priors were make it a film about existential risk, about proper ex existential risk, was that's the nod to what's going on and even if it's not it was i found it really really nice that they had that section in there because i do think mm -hmm. you know I, I had this big i said this conversation with peter Thiel and alex uh epstein at this event over the weekend uh, and he's talking about fossil fuels and the future of climate change and, and energy and energy costs and stuff like that and I keep on wanting, like, I love the conversation. I think Alex's work's fascinating, but I keep on wanting to be like, why is everybody talking about the climate when we've got, you know, artificial intelligence and, and engineered pandemics and natural pandemics? And we've literally just had one that's occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do think that increasingly, hopefully, we'll see films that are more symbolic, trying to get people to understand X risk in a more mm -hmm. well rounded way, like, don't look up because the fact that it's open to inter at least partially open to interpretation means that it starts to get people thinking in this yeah. sort of a way. Yeah, I had a lot of comments of, from people who saw saw it indeed as a uh, metaphor for the pandemic, um, which I kind of I thought about it, but I also knew the film was probably written before the pandemic happened, so I knew that was not the author's intention. Um, but it does, it fit well to a, 
to a certain extent because I do believe the pandemic is a sort of microcosm for climate change um, uh, in the sense that it's a um, an, an external element like out of nature that's kind of invading our like human society and wreaking havoc and kind of like uh, confronting us with our uh, the way we kind of thought we could go ha and have this lifestyle we could go like have this global like everyone's traveling back and forth it doesn't matter but then there's you introduce this one little virus and you can see how it's the same thing with the did you uh, catch the story about that ship that got stuck in the yeah the Suez canal, i think yeah how how like such a tiny event like so such a tiny screw in the machine could like uh mess everything up like um i think it's a was a it's it's also such a reminder of how fragile our system really is and how much we've actually come to take for granted, even though we probably should not have done that. It's a function of the interdependence as well, right? That mm -hmm. you, you you don't have society as even though individuals might have become atomized, everything is very interdependent. And mm -hmm. you know, supply chain issues and problems yeah. to do with, you know, the uh, personal protective equipment and all of the issues that we've had over the last couple of years mm -hmm. um everybody is at the mercy of everybody else yeah but we've and we've grown like entitled about it too like we're not only expecting that this is the way it the, the way things are but we're also like firmly believe this is what we deserve like we should be freedom is like i can do whatever i want and nothing should like impact me in any why should way i have to not yeah. be able to travel when i want to be able to travel yeah exactly uh, why yeah. can't i see my family when i want to be able to see my family and it mm -hmm. not as in the policy is stupid i'm not getting into that discussion i'm getting into the discussion mm -hmm. around why is there a thing that isn't my choice that is impacting the way that i exist in the world yeah yeah i think it it, it has at least for some people like exposed a how we can have a bit of a childish sense of freedom like as a when you're a child like you're you have rules that are laid out by your parents and then you freedom to the child is like i can have a cookie whenever i want like i'll decide when i go to bed like but i think when you're an adult and when you're like maybe like a family man or like uh, um like a parent uh, or, or a partner to someone then there's like you have responsibilities like you freedom is no longer like i'm gonna do whatever i want it's it, it has you have to like get a more mature like version of that to make make it have or make it make sense in an adult context and so i think the people who are really like concerned about uh to put it lightly like petty freedoms like they those are might also be the people whom might need to like have a more evolved sense of what freedom actually means in both an adult context for themselves and maybe also for like on a collective level in a civilized society where um well, also a broader yeah. a broader timeline as well i think one of the yeah, problems yeah definitely one of the problems that we have is that life's become so convenient recently that yeah. we're hyper attuned to any minor reduction in that convenience the fact mm -hmm. that uh, your car your new car is going to take 
14 weeks to arrive instead of 10 weeks to arrive because of supply chain issues to get the particular type of metallic paint and leather mm-hmm. seats that you wanted to go in it. It feels like a, a huge inconvenience, but only because of how hyper-attuned we've become to being able to have things as soon as we want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're completely living within our own sort of time frames, which uh, I was actually watching a video today on YouTube from the channel uh, Are Changing Climate, which is kind of interesting from a uh, like environmentalist perspective. But he uh, also pointed out like this, that maybe at some point we need to go back to living more in tune with like the the waves of or the currents of like the planet. And so like when you go to a supermarket, like maybe we shouldn't expect that everything is always the there, like all, all the year around, yes. like from everywhere around the planet. Like we've, yes. we've grown like so disconnected from the way like the natural ebb and flow of that you can, that you find in nature and like the concepts of seasonality and, um, also with work, like we we're kind of working like the whole year around the clock, uh, like nine to five, even though that doesn't always make sense. Like maybe in the summertime, we feel more energetic than in the wintertime. Maybe we should like account for that or. That's a good point. I've never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. But then, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of those things where we are kind of like disconnected. We're completely living in these mechanical terms instead of like going more with like in terms of like flow or like other elements that you find in nature, but that we have sort of uh repressed or like done away with in our own lives or in our society well we never know when we get mastery over something what is baby and what is bathwater that we're throwing out right mm, you know what yeah. what is it that, and this is one of the most compelling arguments for conservatism that i can think of the fact that progress doesn't always mean making things better you know, you can change things and very easily make them a hell of a lot worse. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, there's probably a pretty easy argument to be made that uh, reductions in norms around casual sex have probably fed into something which was immediately gratifying, but longer term for most people individually and collectively probably doesn't make them actually feel all that much better. Uh, and yet it's really, mm-hmm. really hard to argue against. Well, I'm supposed to be a free individual. I thought that we had control over i can drive myself to work and i can choose where i want to live and i can have Mm -hmm. a job i can get up when i want and i can be hot when it's cold and cold when it's hot why can't i have sex with people whenever i want and you go well no you can you can't like you you actually can but like what you want to do isn't always necessarily what's good for you and um that conflict you're right the kind of feet stamping tantrum that is mostly I would argue people just realizing that maybe the world wasn't as at their whims as they thought it was. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people have probably become quite, and uh, rightly so, you know, you've got uh, pandemic, um, crazy American election cycle that lasted for three months or something, uh, Mm -hmm. war, energy shortage, you know, in the space of two years. So apart from the fact that you're a finite creature surrounded by infinite complexity, you also now have this wild sort of turbulent existence that's going on outside of you. Like it, mm-hmm. it, now is a good time to be freaking out. Like it's, that's fine. Yeah. I genuinely think that that's something that would be a natural response. But yeah. up until that point, we kind of didn't have any stimulus that would have caused us to do that. Yeah, it's weird. You'd you'd almost feel nostalgic about like 2008 when we jo- only had a financial crisis, <laughs> <laughs> and then a good like a good decade to recover from it. Like now, 
like like Russia is at, at the border here, even though we're barely getting over COVID. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shit's moving faster, man. Yeah. Um, what I, else? I wonder though if that's actually something that's happening. If there's actually more crises going on, or or is, if if it's also more that we're like hypersensitive towards stuff that's going on. Yeah, maybe. I I would certainly say that the last couple of years have seen. You know, I don't know whether we would have ignored the Ukraine. Russia conflict. I don't think we would have ignored the no, supply that's chain true. Yeah. shortages. But I also do think that you're right that you've got you are hyper attuned. Well, the human system isn't designed to consume the entire globe's information 24 mm-hmm. hours a day on a real time basis. Yeah. And yeah, I, I've said this for ages that the most competent people that i know now aren't the ones who are able to find information they're the ones that are able to discriminate information you know so mm-hmm. in 2008 we didn't have more information than we needed you know it was still mm-hmm. uh, a competitive advantage to be somebody that was able to seek out more and more and more because the asymmetry between what we wanted to know and what we could know kind of was still imbalanced and we wanted to know more than we had access to. And then there was one month in the end of 2011 or something where the balance between those two things was perfect. (laughs) And then very, very quickly, the balance just pivoted in the other direction. And it was like, it's no longer about whether you can find information. It's about whether you can separate noise and signal apart. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of the, the job broadly of people now. Not to scavenge yeah. for more, but to be able to be more discriminating. Yeah, definitely. Because it's it's a tricky thing too. Like it's very easy to be fooled by information to mistake like noise for signal, as you said. Um, so yeah, that that's something that I that I'm probably most like dreadful about. Like I see, at least in my country, like there's groups of people who seem to be. Where's home for you? The Netherlands. Um. So yeah, there's like in the United States or like I'm guessing everywhere else, like there's increasingly you you see like people who would otherwise be kind of like maybe individuals or like small communities on like the fringes of like not just politics, but just also basic worldview. But they are now like more getting more organized and they're also like feeding each other into this. Like it's it's kind of like they're like they're bordering off their bubble and like trying to drift out slowly like drifting away in their own parallel reality with it becoming like increasingly difficult to reach those because that's something that I do worry about and that I don't really have answers to like how do you reach someone who seems to have a completely different worldview than your own like who's completely like not even more like because politics has always been like an a conflict of values like you debate maybe what kind of directions we should go but now it seems like we're not we're not even getting to that because like we don't even agree like basically on how the world works and that to me that's kind of like scary because that's something that really that that's not going to bring us anywhere I'm, I, I think it's a fundamental incompatibility I learned this from mm-hmm. uh, a, a friend who did uh, philosophy at Oxford and he was saying how people that do ethics professionally I didn't know that being an ethicist is is actually a job but apparently it is mm-hmm. uh, and, and people who partake in debating ethics um, they can have a debate about ethics as long as the meta ethics 
that underpin their beliefs they agree on. So you have to agree on the meta-ethical framework before you can have a discussion about the ethics. And that's a really nice uh, framework yeah, yeah. that I use moving forward. That's, look, we can have a debate about stuff to do with what's going on in the world, but if we can't debate about what the world is or mm-hmm. what the fundamental situation that everything else is being built on top of is, you know, if you're flat earth and I'm lizard people, then mm-hmm. we have a, an incompatible, or maybe we have a completely yeah. compatible worldview. Actually, I think in that case we would probably go along. But the yeah, crossover <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe a little bit better. Um, what do you watch? So you know, like stories of old, your channel, which will be linked in the show notes below. People can go check that mm-hmm. out. It's awesome. Uh, what else do you really? I also have a podcast think? now, by the way. I'm not sure if you've What's listened that to that. It's called Cinema of Meaning. It's uh, we launched it. I, I'm doing it together with Thomas Flight, who's another. Um, YouTube video essayist, a uh, really smart guy too. Um, we launched uh, this March, so it's uh, kind of new. Uh, it's a weekly podcast that uh, each week we discuss like a single film and we really want to dive into like the meanings and philosophies and uh, the kind of the stuff that we're talking about now, but then specifically tied to understanding uh, an individual film. Um, so yeah, that that's something that we're doing. Well, congratulations! Well. Wel- welcome to the welcome to the industry. Who else yeah, do you watch thanks. then online? What are the YouTube channels? If people think oh, this this Tom guy sounds all right, what else do you watch mm-hmm. that you think people should check out? Um, I watch a bunch of different stuff. Um, like like, are you? Th- you, are you asking me like channels similar to mine of like no, whatever you that think, are mine interest because yeah, I have like just whatever you different think. interest than whatever you like, think that people need yeah. to know more about. You can shill whoever you want. Yeah, okay. So there's one guy, he's also from the Netherlands, uh, but he makes content in English um, that I recently came across. He's called Martijn Dolaert. Okay, yeah, no one's um, going to be able to spell that, Tom. Yeah, he has a video series. Uh, it's called Two Years on a Bike. If you search for that, I'm sure you'll find it. It's a four-part video series where he basically accounts the journey he made on his bicycle from Vancouver to Patagonia, I think it was. Um, But it was really just like this great exercise in cinematography and storytelling. And he is now doing a series in which he has bought like a cabin in the Italian Alps that he's really just just, uh, renovating from scratch. And... Um, the interesting thing is it's not really about anything. He makes these long vlogs, but you see a lot of them. He, a lot of them is just he or just him doing everyday stuff. Like he, he's like, today I'm going to do the plumbing or whatever. Today I'm going to build a temporary shed while I work on the other cabin. And so it's a really, to me, it's kind of like, it took me by surprise. Like I was watching it and I, I was thinking at first, like, oh, this is kind of boring. Like I was even skipping through a little bit. But at some point I kind of tuned into what he was doing and it became this really, it's almost like an escape into into someone's life who is more like connected to or more directly connected to his labor and to to the world, to say it like a bit cheesily. Um, it seems like a peaceful way to yeah that to be yeah that's it, he, he really captures that sense of peace of like and uh, he, he instantly mo- makes you want to go like into your garden or whatever and, and work on <laughs> something with your started hands started building like. a shed out back there's a uh, a series of books um the name of the wind by patrick rothfuss and then the subsequent one is wise man's fear and uh 
that series is written the same way as the YouTube that you're talking about. So mm. the second book is a thousand one hundred pages, and dude, it goes so slowly. Like you get mm -hmm. to know this guy's daily routine. You get to learn yeah. about the route that he walks to go and play his loot at the club that he plays at on a nighttime. And you can go for, you know, a good while and kind of not much happens. I mean, it's beautifully mm -hmm. written and the, the characters are compelling and the protagonist's really, really fun. But I really enjoyed the more pedestrian nature of this book. It wasn't super quick cuts yeah. every three seconds. It wasn't. And then a mm -hmm. dragon arrived and some crazy shit happened. Mm -hmm you sink into the the piece and the pedestrian sort of pace and cadence that he goes through. Yeah, I think it's good to immerse yourself in content like that every now and then, whether it's a book or like a YouTube series, because I think it's also something that you then carry with you outside of it. Like you, when you like stop watching a video like that or you stop reading that book, then maybe when you're like doing something for yourself, then uh, maybe you bring that same awareness to your own activities, which um i think it's kind of like enriching or at least probably yeah i think i certainly found when i was reading that book that i had that same sort of mindset i think your your stuff has that uh a similar sort of pacing to it that's kind of um considered and mm -hmm. and makes you reflect i'll give you the best thing that i've found uh melody sheep have you heard of them it does ring a bell, yeah. So they do um, documentaries uh, in space, but the entire thing is uh, created on a computer in uh, beautiful motion animation, for, like 4K. The whole thing is insane. And uh, the guys that do it, I don't know who they are. They must work professionally outside of this. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's called Melody Sheep, and they've just announced, they do a trailer before the full-length films get released and they've just released a new trailer uh, about some new alien worlds documentary that they're going to do and it's outstanding like the fact that it's on youtube is completely disgusting it's the the <laughs> some of them the, the sound editing's great the narration's brilliant the script writing's really good it's genuinely interesting and you learn a ton of different stuff so they did this one mm -hmm. about um how life could have evolved on different planets and stuff like that uh, and you're compelled to watch, but the main thing is it it looks like Interstellar, you know, like it's oh, well, so yeah. spectacular. So those that's two. Uh, you said mm -hmm. two years on a bike will find your guy, and mm -hmm. Melody Sheep from me will find mine. And if people want to get started, the uh, Alien Worlds, I think it's called, is a series that they can get cracking with. Sounds good. Yeah. So. Tom, I really appreciate you, man. I love the work that you do. I hope that you continue to do it. Like Stories of Old will be linked in the show notes below. If people want to find out other bits that you do online, where should they go? Um, I don't really have a website or anything. I have a Patreon page that also links to like some of the stuff that I have, like the YouTube. Um, I'm not sure if Cinema of Meaning, the podcast, is on there, but you can find that wherever you're probably listening to this podcast. So, uh, yeah, you can check that out as well. And um, um also on nebula the streaming platform i'm not sure if you're you've heard of that one uh that's a like a creator-owned streaming platform i'm like uh it's something we created with like a bunch of youtubers they came together and they sort of uh kind of through our own agency and we started our own streaming platform that's it's it's basically like uh netflix but with youtubers like you pay a monthly fee instead of um 
having ads. So it's the, the experience is completely ad free. And so uh, we also get a much like fairer like share of the revenue. So that's um, kind of the, the principle of it. And uh, a lot of us, including myself, have been posting like some exclusive stuff there or like extended videos. Uh, you also see like uh, you always see like special uh, edit video, especially edited videos without like the sponsor bits at the end, because like again it's completely ad free, so that includes the uh, sponsor you normally see in the video itself. Uh, so yeah, you can definitely check that out as well. Dope man, I appreciate you. Thanks for today. Yeah. Thanks. Get away, get away.